prayer. Dearly Father, as we're about ready to open your word today, help it to shine clearly into our lives. Thank you that your word is active and alive and is powerful and can cut down to the very heart of our souls. So dearly Father, may your work, may your word do its work in our lives. There's so many things that can so easily distract us, so many things that can easily take our hearts and our minds away from what you have to say for us. And so dearly Father, may your truth and your word be the beacon in our light in our lives to show the light of the world around us. In your name we pray. Amen. The Bible is the truth. The Bible does not just contain certain things that are true or not, left up mankind to determine what he thinks is true or not. The Bible is, by definition, the truth because it is the very Word of God. When Jesus in John 17, 17 reminds us again that thy Word is truth, and we're going to sanctify by thy truth because his Word is truth. And so we should never be afraid then to ask questions when Scripture claims something. When Scripture says this is what happens or this is what's going to happen, we should never run in fear that Scripture could not hold up to some type of scrutiny. And so when we read Scripture and we read it and it claims to be the historic record of history, we need to either believe it as the historic record of history or reject it. And so as we read Scripture, we need to allow Scripture also to read itself. And what I mean by that is this, if you're about ready to open up a book and it said, once upon a time, most likely, I would say probably 101%, you're reading a work of fiction because it is not written in an historical way. Now, here's another example. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away is not a work of nonfiction. That is a work of fiction. You can literally tell by the opening phrase of it. So all of you Star Wars people, that is a fictional story, all right? We read it as such. Same thing, too, when it comes to the Word of God. If it starts using dates and times and numbers, we read it as such. So when we read Genesis 7 through 10 and the whole chapter of Genesis 7, and we will see on this day it happened on this day, it is claiming, the Bible is claiming that this is historical and it happened in time and space. And it's important for us, then, when we read things about the global flood and about the ark, it's important for us to ask questions. Well, how did that happen? All right, those typical things that are there. And those are important for us to understand. And I would encourage you to spend time. There are phenomenal um, answers, literally, to what happened in Genesis. And there's a, a whole group that calls, called Answers in Genesis that explains all of the things of why it happened and everything else, literally to the point of they're going to show you how these things can take place. But before we get into any of that, and I'm going to say that that has been done so well, I don't need to walk us through those things. I think we need to take a step back and ask a bigger question. The text we're about ready to read here, is this a story about Noah and his phenomenal boat building skills that he is able to build a boat and an ark to carry humanity, literally the only Humanity that is alive on the earth through a massive flood. Do we sit here in his Genesis 7 through 10 all about on how well Noah did it? And I would argue, no, that's not the point of the passage. But I would also argue it's important to study this. Like, I'll give you an example of how this plays out. When I taught in junior high Bible and we would get to the story of David and Goliath, I would spend time explaining 
that David did not go out and find a wise stick with a little rubber band like a pea shooter to take down Goliath. We did study like the weapon of a slingshot. That's important. But the whole story of David and Goliath is not David's incredible skill. It's that God keeps his promise. All right, and so what can happen is we can get bogged down on some of the details, but I, please hear me. I'm going to say this very clear. Answers in Genesis is a phenomenal thing, and you need to go see the ark, be part of it. I want to make sure we're clear so you don't go, does Tim have a thing about Ken Ham? No, I don't. I think his ministry is phenomenal, all right? What I'm going to say is as we're going through, I'm not going to deal with how did Noah get all the animals in the ark. I'm not going to deal with how did he feed them. I'm not going to deal with all of those other things because that ministry has done it phenomenally well. What I want to do is take a step back and look at literally what is this teaching us about the very nature and character of God. So let's look at Genesis 1, sorry, 7, 1 through 10. Genesis 7, 1 through 10. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, and the male and his mate, and the pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of birds of the heavens, also a male and a female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of the waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives went with him into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean, of birds and every creeping thing that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. I would, two very, just very clear statements. The Bible, from beginning to end, is the testimony of the character and nature of God. The Bible teaches us who God is. The Bible teaches us how He acts and what we are to do in light of who God is. The Bible also reveals not only who He is, but what God is concerned about. Because what God is concerned about, guess what He's done? He's put it in His Word. If it's not in His Word, that means we do not need to be concerned about it because God is, what He has said, He has given to us. That is why we go no further than when Scripture goes. Where Scripture is silent, what should we be? Silent, all right? These are the truths as we teach. But I want you to be clear here then. So that means everything that is in the Word of God must also then be important to us. So let's walk through what we see here. I want to notice something real quick, what God is not concerned about. As we read this passage, God is not concerned about the environment that He has created. All right, let's think for a moment here. The incredible power and wisdom and beauty that God created the world with is, non, is phenomenal. All right? We do not know what pre-flood world looks like. Do you understand the beauty we have now is after water has just gone all over the earth and now we have it and we see the beauty of that, but it's only literally a beauty of destruction, not a beauty of creation. It's a beauty of decreation of the water, literally just shaking the whole earth. So the beauty of it all, God does not say, now listen guys, you totally messed this up, and do you know how much work it's going to be to recreate all of these things? No, God is not concerned with that at all. What He is concerned about is God is concerned about righteousness and obedience. Because this is what we see over and over again. Why is He going to destroy the world? Because of man's sin. This is what He is concerned about. We see this over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. 
where God will destroy the world again, and he will destroy the world again, creating a new heavens and a new earth. And the reason why he does it is for the sake of his name and his holiness. Because God cannot dwell with sin. Also, we will see, too, that God in complete control of creation, and not only is he in complete control of creation because he is going to bring waters of judgment, he is in complete control of history because he is writing history. He is the one that is determining this is what's going to happen and this is what's going to happen. Also notice this too, that God clearly is able to make judgments between righteous and unrighteous. Notice he says, Noah, you are righteous. And in saying, Noah, you are righteous, he's also able to call out unrighteousness. God is not ambiguous of those who are his or not. God knows who the righteous are. He knows who the unrighteous are. Literally, we see that in the text. But what we also see, too, in this is we have learned so far that God is patient, gracious, and long-suffering, warning sinners of judgment. If we go back to Genesis 6, we see when God says to Noah, you need to build the ark, and he says in 120 years, the flood is going to come. Man has already been judged, and the sentence has already been carried out, but what does God do? He gives an incredible 120 years of repentance for these people to repent as Noah's building the ark as a rebuke to the world that judgment is coming but God is incredibly patient warning sinners over and over again of the doom in front of them what we also have seen so far too is that when God judges sin the consequence of that judgment is death which is huge because we have to understand that one day a death will come that will destroy all death that will deal with the consequence of sin Because I would argue if we don't understand the flood, we do not get the rest of Scripture because all of Scripture is speaking in one voice pointing us to the cross. All Scripture is speaking in one voice pointing us to the cross as well as the future redemption that is yet to come. So let's take our time here and walk through what are some of the character and nature of God that we see here in these verses. Point number one is we're going to see that God is the sustainer of life. Notice in verse 1, What does God say to Noah? Get into the ark. And you're going to go, wow, really? That needs to be saved? Why? Because where is salvation found from the flood? In the ark. So what does God command Noah to do? Go to the place where your life will be sustained. Because it's interesting, after giving the directions on how to build the ark, the next time we see recorded for us in Scripture that God speaks is to tell Noah, get in the boat now. And what does Noah do? He does it. So in faith of things not yet seen, 120 years of building an ark, and the time has come to get in, and have we had a global flood yet to show Noah that you're not building an ark for no reason? No, we have not had that yet. But what do we have, though? The very promise of Almighty God that He said to Noah, this will happen, and Noah's faith that God, who says it will happen, actually has the power to demonstrate what will happen will actually happen. All right, And these are the things that you sit here and you go, what are, what are we supposed to learn today? I would argue faith works the same way today. That there are promises that God has given you that you may go, I don't see them right now. Actually, it seems like I see the opposite. Because Noah is building an ark... Literally, for a thing that he says, I trust God that this is going to happen. I've not seen this happen yet, but I trust him. And because I trust him, I'm going to live in obedience. 
It's interesting, God the sustainer of life. The ark is the way in which God will sustain not only human life, but the life of land animals as well. God the sustainer of human life and animal life. Interestingly enough, after the fall of the 120 years when God says man is going to be destroyed in 120 years, what do we see in that 120 years? Mankind is still being rebellious against God. Yet God is even sustaining the life of rebellious creatures, knowing that one day they will get the punishment they deserve. It's interesting because when God makes the judgment that man is wicked in need of literally destruction, what does God do? He withholds that judgment for a, a hold that consequence for 120 years, being incredibly gracious, even though man has earned that judgment. Notice God, the sustainer of life. Notice when the ark was made, it was a motorless vessel. It did not have a combustion engine on it to be able to steer around things. What is Noah doing? Noah gets in the ark, and God is the one that is protecting and sustaining the vessel. Because God is the one that said, you will build this, and when the, the storms of life come against it, God is the one who is sustaining it. Not Noah. Noah is not in there steering with anything. He is there trusting God that God is the one that is protecting him. It's interesting here as well that notice in verse 3 here, a summary statement, as it's going through the pairs of the birds of the heavens and everything else they need to bring in, and notice it says at the end, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. So why are these animals coming in? Because the flood is going to be global, and if you are not in the ark, guess what? You have no more offspring, and the reason why you have no more offspring is because you're dead. All right, I know that's pretty tricky. So these are the people that are going, if you don't believe in the global flood, all God would have had to say to the animals is, go a couple of towns over and you'll be good. All right, the reason why they needed to be in the ark, because of the ark, if you were not in the ark, you were dead. Now the text is going to tell us other ways. Like verse 21, and all flesh that moved on the earth died. All right, like, all right, so, you know, like this is death is global. All right, but we see in the text here, just in the one we're dealing with, that God is the one who is sustaining life. It's interesting here, though, in verses uh, 1 through 10, you see the first mention in the Bible of clean animals. Some of you, as you're reading this, are going to go, well, wait a minute, I thought clean, unclean animals were like Mosaic law when he was doing this. How do we get them in here? Let me help you explain something. God spoke to Adam, and he taught Adam things that are not recorded in Scripture. I wanted to help you out there, all right? This, same thing, too. God has spoken and revealed himself in ways to people, and he's explaining. So, like, to give you an example, how did Cain and Abel know they needed to do a sacrifice? Because God told them that. They didn't come up with it on their own, all right? And so when we look through this, the idea of sacrificing animals is not something that is only found in the Mosaic Law. I would argue it's something that is all pointing us to Christ. So why clean and unclean animals? The reason why we have clean and unclean animals, I believe, is the primary issue of the symbolic nature of God wanting His people to learn how to make distinctions. Here's what we have. We have clean and unclean animals, but who determines if they're clean or unclean? God. Not Adam, not Eve, not Noah. God is the one who said these are clean and these are unclean. 
Because God is once a people who are able to also make distinctions between what? Righteousness and unrighteousness. So what does Noah do? Verse 5, And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. So when God says, go get clean animals, he goes and gets clean animals. When God says, do this, Noah does it. Interesting here, though, notice the clean animal number is greater than two. Uh, I would argue the reason why they are greater than two is because Noah will sacrifice animals as a gift offering after the flood, Genesis 8.20. When Noah comes out, he sacrifices these animals. So if you only bring two, you're not having a sacrifice because you were killing off these animals. But God said, because after the flood you will sacrifice like the pattern that we see all throughout Scripture of God's, the gift that mankind is giving back to God as a sacrifice. A sacrifice of what type of animal, though? A clean animal. Remember, the story of, of the Bible is one moving story forward, pointing us to Christ, because one day, Along the Jordan, there will be a man, the forerunner of Christ, baptizing in the Jordan. And as he's baptizing in the Jordan, he's going to make a claim. And he's going to state something that we're going to see all throughout Scripture pointing this, where John the Baptist looks and he says, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. What is he pointing to? That the perfect sacrifice is now here. The beauty of it all. And we see this going all the way through that one day, a perfect, clean animal that we could never find, spotless in that way, was going to actually, the Lamb of God, which is Jesus Christ, is going to come and die. This is a beautiful picture of God, the sustainer of life. God is the one who has set up the rules of life. And God has reminded us that because of sin and the sacrifice that is needed, that one day that perfect Lamb would come and to die that perfect death, doing away with all sacrifice. Point number two, not only do we see God the sustainer of life, we see that God promises protection and destruction. It's interesting, God does not hesitate to destroy when iniquity is full. I want to be clear, this is a theme throughout Scripture. When iniquity is full, God comes in and judges. What are we going to see? God says in 120 years, judgment will come. When the iniquity comes, when the iniquity is full, God judges. We see this in the flood. Wickedness and corruption had come to the level that God had determined, and what does He do? He judges. And just to let you know, this is also seen in other places of Scripture. Turn with me to Genesis 15. That God, the righteous judge, knows when it is time to judge. Even though in our own minds we may say, I think judgment should come now. In Genesis 15, when God is making a covenant with Abraham, we're going to start in verse 12. When God makes His covenant, it's a beautiful picture of God and His promises that He is giving. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abraham, I I love these know for certain passages. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there. This was when Joseph goes down. Remember, the the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. Just like that is certain, notice what else? And they will be afflicted for 400 years. This is God telling them what's going to happen to the Israelite people. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve. And what was the judgment? The ten plagues. And they shall come out with great possessions. What happened? 
They came out with great possessions. Notice all of these things taking place. And how do we know they're taking place? Because God said what? I will do this. And he goes on to say, after, verse 15, As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And then they shall, meaning the Israelites, shall come back in the fourth generation. And then there's a phrase, and you're like, what's going on here? For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And you're going, what's going on here? Well, guess who's going to be God's judgmental hand to destroy the Amorites in 1 Samuel 15? The Israelites. Because he's saying the iniquity of the Amorites has not reached the level yet that they will be destroyed. But the level will come in the fourth generation, and then God would use this. This is the way God deals with all peoples in the Bible. Think about Israel. How many times they rebelled against God? Remember the whole book of Habakkuk that we went through, where God is saying to Habakkuk, when Habakkuk says, when are you going to deal with injustice? When are you going to deal with sin? And what does God say to him? Basically, sit down and watch. I'm bringing up the Chaldeans that will be my hand of judgment on the people of Israel. And what's Habakkuk's issue? Wait a minute, we're still better off than those pagans. But Habakkuk didn't understand that in God's economy, God says he is the one that judges, and when he judges, it is perfect and just and right. Do we not also see this in Revelation, where the whole book of Revelation tells us there's a day coming when God will judge the earth perfectly for their wickedness? So the promise is the same in Noah's day as the same today that only those in the ark are saved as we know today that those who are in Christ will be saved. So what is the call of the gospel? The call of the gospel can be found in a simple verse in Proverbs 18.10. Turn with me to Proverbs 18.10. In Proverbs 18.10, this is kind of hard because we don't live in the world of castles, but in Proverbs 18.10, it says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Those who are found in Christ are safe. Just like those who are found in the ark are safe. Not because of their own doing. They don't trust in the ark, but they trust in the one who said, this is the way to salvation. This is the way of protection. So what is the call of the Gospel? The call of the Gospel is run. Run to Christ. Because in Him and Him alone is found salvation. And that must be the call of our lives. That must be the call of everything we do. Run, run to Him. While there is still time. Our last but not least, though, we see a point here where God repeats what He finds important. As you've been going through this passage here, back to Genesis chapter 7, it seems like there is a one thought over and over and over again. As I've been working through these sermons, and I'm working through the passage, it seems like I could be preaching the same sermon over and over and over again. It is not because Tim can't think of anything more to say. It is because literally in the text, he keeps repeating the concept over and over and over again. And what are we repeating over and over again? Is God is very, and I don't like this word, but I couldn't think of anyone better. My thesaurus was not working as great as I like. God is very concerned with the sin in the universe. I don't like the word concerned, all right? It's, it's stronger than that, all right? Because I use the thing of like, I'm kind of concerned about my kids driving in the snow, all right? That's not even close to God's concern with sin in the universe. You following that? We use the word such, in a, such a human Word, all right. When we say concerned, that God is concerned with it because He brings it up over and over and over again. Why? 
Is it because God just doesn't have anything else better to do with His time that He is concerned with the sin of the universe? No, I would argue because His holy character, the holy nature of God demands that sin does not go unpunished. What we see here is a reminder that God has and will and will again judge man for His wickedness. Yet what we see though sadly We see in our own day and age, this is what it seems that we see, yet sadly man sees the time that we have now of God's long-suffering as if God is being weak, or maybe He doesn't care about sin. It was amazing. I was reading an article this last week, and it just came up as a side note, that there was a decision that was made by a group of people that have been given powers, about seven of them, actually nine of them, that made a decision on on this situation, and the decision that they made of about overturning a certain rule literally brought about the life of 30,000 young children that would not have been born. I'll let you figure out what I'm talking about. And they said this decision literally saved 30,000 babies. And you want to go, so if they would have decided the opposite way, we have literally people getting killed. I'm going to say, yes, we live in a day and age where the question arises, do we kill this child or do we not kill this child? It's a form of barbaric living. All right? We have become barbaric as a society, where we are literally consuming our own. And the question in front of us is then, God, how long? How long until judgment comes down on us? But yet what the world seems to do is they do it, and it's like they look back over the shoulder, are we going to get judged? And we see, instead of the judgment of God, they see God's grace calling them to repentance, and they see as if God must not care. Instead of seeing God in His long-suffering calling man, repent. I mean, isn't that not the call of the Gospel that goes out every day, that we should be living in our own lives, repent and believe? Yet one day, And this is the beauty. This is why I'm so excited again coming up about the Christmas season as we're going through the flood at the same moment as we're going to be lighting uh, Advent candles, reminding ourselves of the joy and the peace and the hope and what Christ brings. All of this is pointing us to one day where we look to the cross And we see God does care, and He does act. And when we see the cross, where we see at the root of the cross, justice of God and the mercy of God meeting. Where God's wrath is poured out on the perfect sacrifice, His Son, that all who believe in Him will have eternal life. That's the beauty of Christmas. It's the beauty of this message. That this baby born in a manger is the answer to all of what history has been longing for. And so when we think about these things, when we see all of these things playing out, we can get so caught up with, all right, so how did the animals get here? How do we deal with this? And you can read article and article after all of these things as if that somehow you need to do that in order to strengthen your faith, where I would argue, look to Christ and Christ alone as we read these things. What does this have to say about God? It's interesting, I was reading an article one time about how these people were floored that this happened, and I sit here and go, what, that should not floor us. I picked up a National Geographic one time when I was reading, and they were doing the genetics of mankind, and in this National Geographic they said, billions and billions and millions of years ago, there was a time where all of humanity, somehow something happened where they came down to one family, and the genetic line can be traced, and it came down to one family because of some type of global event, and then it spread out from there, and we see now all of this narrowing down and a spreading out that happened. 
All right, I want to help you out real quick. That does not need to say, oh, now we understand that the Bible is true. The Bible has claimed it. Whether science took gazillions of years to figure that out or not, we don't sit there and go, oh, I'm glad science affirmed the Bible. But yet so many times we can run that way instead of missing the larger picture. What is the larger picture about it all? It all points to Him and Him alone. God is able to do far more abundantly all we can ask or think, and what we see here is an incredibly gracious, loving God. While mankind is rebelling over and over and over again, God even says to Noah, in seven days I'm going to destroy the earth. How many days does He give Noah to even get in the ark? Seven. Does Noah deserve seven-day warning? No, he could have said to Noah, get in now. But he even said to Noah, seven days judgment is coming. And Noah and his family get ready. And by the grace of God, we will see what happens in their lives. But here's what we see in front of us. We think about what did we learn today? What is going on in this passage? I think many times in Scripture, we need to pause. And when we need to pause and we need to look at the very nature and character of God that is being described here, because the, the struggle of it all, at the root of all of the struggle of humanity, and our knee-jerk reaction, our, our, if you want to call it where we fall into, our rut is continually wanting to put ourselves on the throne of the story. Or we look and all of a sudden we read about Noah and we're like, Noah must have been a pretty great guy. The reason why he was a great guy because he had an even greater Savior. And what can happen is we can start living our lives thinking that in a way we're doing God a favor or all these other things instead of realizing it. Our life's call is to bring glory and honor to Him above all. That is why Noah's response after getting out of the ark is not to pat his sons on the back. As I was talking to my dad this week, it wasn't like the, all of his sons, they all did this jump high five and were like, man, can we build a boat. All right, That is not what they did. They got on their knees and they sacrificed to God saying, you are the protector of it all. But here's what happens, and it happens all the time. I mean, it's simple things like this. So like, and I'll just pick on all, all of our lives here, all right? For us farmers, I don't know how many times I've heard people, I felt really, really good when I finally got my beans or corn in. Why? Because you did it, right? <laughs> or you're going, while I'm doing this, thank you, Lord, that I got these in. Because they were your crop when you planted it. You were the one that gave the increase. If I never give them in or not, it is all yours anyway. To you be the glory. Here's what happened in my own life. All right, I never know in my mind, these are the goofy things that Tim's worry about. Like we have an old part of our house that we need the pellet stove to work or my kids complain about how cold it is. And I have to keep saying, suck it up, all right? So every time I turn on the pellet stove, right, there's a little bit of, all right, Lord, let's get this thing running. Will it run or not, you know? And I'm sitting there. And so you know what I do all the time, and I have yet to do this, and I was just convicted when I was walking through this. You know what I did not do before I turned the thing on? Prayed. But you know what I did do? I scraped it all down to make sure all the rust was out of it, and I cleaned it all, but I didn't even stop and say, Lord, you know if this is going to work or not. Will you get the glory even if it doesn't work? May I teach my kids how to be patient when they're cold in these things? But nope, I plowed right ahead in the strength of Tim, and then it worked. And I'm like, yeah, I cleaned that thing well. I'm like, oh, wait a minute. In Him we live and move and have our being, and all of these things are done to the glory and honor of God. Because you know why the ark was going to survive was because God was the sustainer of it. 
Not Noah sitting there going, did we use the right, right percentage and ratio of pitch to whatever in the pitch they're putting in there, right? It was God was the one who was protecting them. Because a right view of God, a right view of God gives us a right view of self. Because a high view of man gives us a low view of God. And this is our argument over and over and over again in our own lives. We have a really great view of ourselves. Not a biblical view. We have a very man-centered view of how great we are. But what we need over and over and over again is a reminder of how great God is. One of the beautiful things in these, in these historical narratives of Scripture is that they teach us far more about God than anything else because that is what they're there for, to teach us about the character and nature of God. And so we must pause, and as we read these beautiful narratives, we must ask ourselves, one of the first questions we ask ourselves when we come to any passage is, what does this passage teach us about God? Not what does this passage teach me about me, all right? I don't read passages to find where I am in the Bible. We read passages where it points to us to God, and as we understand who God is, we get to understand who we are. So what I'd love to ask ourselves at this moment here, we need to take a moment and investigate our own hearts and say, God, where are the times and where are the places in my own life that I am trying to lean on my own understanding? Because if Tim was building the ark, do you know how many times I would have walked around it, checked it all? I would have come up with theory after theory about how the ark is going to get off the ground. I would have had restless moments of pacing back and forth. Are these things going to work? And all these other things. Instead of saying, God told Noah to build it with the dimensions he told him to build it. And what did Noah do? He built it. All right? We don't see the stress of Noah going back and forth one way or the other. We see... God told Noah to do it, and in verse 5, and Noah did what God had commanded him. All right? It was interesting. Verse 16, we're not even on this topic right now, but look at verse 16 in Genesis 7. And those that entered, male and female, all flesh went in as God had commanded him. And then the Lord shuts the door. What is Noah doing? Simply trusting and obeying what God had called him to do. And so we have to ask ourselves, what are the areas in my own life right now that I am not trusting in? Because God is literally giving us example after example in our lives for us to follow. As a parent, do you ever miss teachable moments? As a parent, do you ever look back and go, boy, we could have had a really good teachable moment there, but I just flew right through it and looking back, I'm like, oh, we could have had moments there. There's been times in my own life where I've said, Lord, be patient with me. I would encourage you guys to ask the same thing over and over again. Lord, be patient with me. Teach me your way. Show me the areas of my life that are not conformed to your will. And we need to pray daily that God would give us a proper understanding of who He is so we would get a proper understanding of who we are. That's not something we need to take lightly. That's something I really, truly do believe we need to get down, not just as, as leadership, but as a church in general, to say, Lord, teach me your way. Give me a better understanding of you than I may get a better understanding of myself. Because when we do that, we will live humbly before a holy and righteous God. 
one of the struggles, if we could go back and we were to say, what is going on in the flood that would have caused God to destroy the whole world? What we will, would have seen is what we would have seen right now is the arrogance of man saying, I'm going to do it my way, not God's way. Because what is Noah's life a rebuke of? God says it and he obeys. What was the disobedience going on? God had said it and man said, nope, I'm going to do my own. That's called wickedness. That's called evil. All right, disobedience. And so our prayer should be, Lord, teach me your way, that I may know you. Let's pray. Dearly Father, as we look at passages like this, may our hearts and our minds be drawn to you and the nature and the character of you, not to our own understanding. Thank you. That is by your grace and your grace alone that we stand. May we be a people who love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Stand with us as we sing. You can open your hymnals to number four.